So Joy, what did we talk about today? Today we talked about my identity and background, especially my experience as an adoptee and a multiracial, multicultural person. And then I got to deep dive into why I'm studying gifted education, what giftedness Mm -hmm. is, and some of my aspirations to support career development and well-being of gifted and talented learners. Yeah, let's get started. Welcome to Try With Ping. This is Ping Robert, and in this podcast, we will cover a range of different topics from culture, languages, and underrepresented stories. Join me with a cup of chai and listen to these stories. Welcome back to Chai with Bing. Today, I'm here with my good friend from the same um, college in the university. She's now a doctoral student um, at the University of Denver and specializing in gifted education. I knew her since my, I think, first year, and then we started talking, and it's just so fun to talk with her. So let's welcome Joy Lin. Hello. Glad to be here. Yay! (laughs) How are you doing these days? I'm doing okay, staying busy, worried about the future, you know, pretty normal. (laughs) Are you still working in the district during summer? I am not. I was previously a substitute teacher, and I've yet to learn how that might look going forward in the future. Yeah, yeah. So, Joy, let's talk about a little your background and, you know, how, yeah, you know, how, how your history made who you are right now. I am a doctoral student at the University of Denver, like you said. Let's see, my history. I was born in Okinawa, Japan. I'm multiracial. Growing up, I always thought I was vaguely Taiwanese and Black. And I didn't do 23andMe until I was an adult to learn more about that. But I was born in Okinawa, Japan, and I was adopted by an American family when I was 10 days old. And my father was in the military, both, both apparently my birth father and my adopted father were in the military. And at 11 months, we came back to the United States and I lived in North Carolina and Georgia until I was 10 years old. And then my father got stationed back in Okinawa, Japan. So we moved back and I got to lived there from sixth to 12th grade. Um, When I graduated, my parents moved to mainland Japan for a while. And I attended college briefly in Illinois for undergrad and then transferred to Colorado midway through and completed my undergrad in mathematics and um, secondary education at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, which I chose for for their teaching program And since then, since 2006, when I graduated, I worked as a teacher, as a middle school, mostly math teacher. And I also worked as an organizer and event coordinator with the Colorado Education Association, which is a teacher's union here, and advocated for public education. Um, I also briefly lived in the United Kingdom for a while, and I did my student teaching in the UK at um, Alconbury Air Force Base, Mm -hmm. which was fun as well. So I have traveled a lot, and 
I definitely, while I'm technically an American citizen, I was naturalized as a child. Um, I definitely feel like I'm a global citizen. Yeah. Wait, that's a lot to unpack. So you said that you're half Taiwanese, half black. How, like, do you know any stories um, from your birth parents? Have you met them? I have not met my birth parents. I do have my birth certificate. So I do have my birth mother's name and date of birth, which could be helpful um, if I were to try to find her intensely. I also, as a child, even though I was born in Japan, I didn't have a Japanese passport. So when I flew to America the first time, it was on a Taiwanese passport which means there is some layer of documentation that Taiwan has about who my birth family must be. My passport does say my ancestors traced to Guangxi, China, which was very interesting. And um, I think That's, actually yeah, a DU so student, yeah. I think a DU student who is from Taiwan, um, I showed him my passport and he's the one who read it and said Guangxi. Yeah. And when I did my 23andMe later on and I found out I was half Chinese, you know, it traced to just north of Vietnam. So yeah. it's interesting to have at least, even though I don't have family to identify with directly, mm -hmm. at least I have a region that does feel more like my ancestral homeland. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just wonder like, hmm, how did a Taiwanese mom or even a Chinese mom, because like many people in Taiwan, they actually came from China uh, or they have Chinese roots, um, just, just like me, my grand, both sides of my grandparents are from China, but I grew up in, in Taiwan. And, and how, how did your birth mom get connected to your black dad and huh. then ended up in Japan? Well... I assume, well, okay, my birth mother's occupation on my birth certificate is listed as nurse. So I believe she was in Okinawa, Japan, working as a nurse. And then I believe she met my birth father. I don't think necessarily that they were together for a long time or traveling around the world together exactly. But she was there. And then, you know, my grandmother was sweet and would try to make me feel special but she would just tell me lies about my childhood and she's like oh you're a princess and stuff and I'm like am I what I need a research and then I had to like tease that apart <laughs> that she's just trying to be like kind but she didn't know at all yeah and, yeah oh um, you're you're adopted, adopted. yeah grandma ah, okay. I've never oh, met wow. any of my birth family got it all. got it at some point would you <laughs> I would be interested. Mm. I, yeah, the adoption agency that my family used is no longer in existence. Oh. So it's extra complicated to try to yeah. find paperwork. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see. Okay. See, I'd like to know, but also I'm happy that they made the choice to have me be adopted instead. Yeah. And I think what is so special is that a lot of adopting families, they actually change the child's last name, but you still have your Lin as your last name. Oh, yeah. Um, my birth name, 
exists. And Lynn was my first name, not the family name. Lynn was my name. Okay. And when my parents adopted me at 10 days old, I stayed the baby for about a month and they went back and forth on naming me and they decided to keep the Lynn as part of my name. And now I have, they, Joy Lynn was all of my middle name, is all of my middle name legally, but professionally I have started to just use Joy as my first name, Lynn is my last, even though together those are both my middle names which is very confusing, but I realized that that's what people call me. That is my name. And if you're looking for me, that's what you should look for. So I have a DBA so I can use my own name and I lobbied with DU to make sure I got joy.lin at du.edu as my student email account, you know? So it's been quite a challenge to assert my identity just in the name. Is there any reason that you chose Joy Lynn as your name and now professionally make it more formal for that? Is there, wait, what was your original name? Um, my adopted name was Candace Joy Lynn Fielder. Oh. And then I have an ex-husband. So my mm -hmm. current last name is my ex's name. So that's not me either. Oh. And no one ever calls me Candace except the doctor. <laughs> the IRS, you know. Yeah. So my whole life, people would call me Joy Lynn. Um, mm. My middle name is hyphenated, Joy hyphen Lynn. So I was always Joy Lynn, Joy Lynn, Joy Lynn. And then yeah. sometimes there would be another Joy in the group. Yeah. So then I was very strongly the Joy Lynn. Yeah. And once I remember in college in Illinois, I met this lovely Asian woman. Mm. And I'm like, hi, I'm Joy Lynn. And she goes, hi, I'm Teresa Lynn. And she got all excited. Like we were connected at this level. And I'm like, wow, that's the wrong level of connection. But also we weren't connected and she was yeah. a delight. And um, I think experiences like that where people think it's my last name, you know, mm. it's just, I don't need to correct them anymore. Yeah. And I identify with Joy and Lynn the most. Mm. How has that identity affected you throughout your life? Because, I mean, there sounds like a, a growth and also a little progression along the way. Um, you're trying to identify yourself as Joy Lynn, and then, I don't know, maybe you want to put that root in your identity as well? I left it. You know, I have other last names, if I need it to pick, that come from other cultures. Mm -hmm. But the Lynn is my lineage and my ancestry, and yeah. I wanted to respect that, and that is who I am. Mm, yeah. So. Wow. Okay. So what do you think that your strengths are being a multicultural person? Ooh, this is a <laughs> big question. I think in general, the first strength is just having a global perspective. I don't feel like I'm only any one thing because I am so much. And I was talking to another multiracial friend recently and she's like, I'm not a mixed salad. I'm a smoothie. And that's kind of true. I'm not one or the other. And I had complexities with 
how do I identify? And um, I feel both half Asian and half African-American black. So I felt like all these pieces. And when I did 23andMe, I learned that I was 50% Asian Chinese, um, 37.5% black African, and then 12.5% or so white. And that was very interesting to me because culturally I identified with white America quite a bit through my childhood. But to find that out was interesting because it also meant my birth father was about a third white, you know, and just realizing, I don't know what that meant for his life. And I wonder about my birth grandparents and so on. But I lived in Japan for half my life and I'm half Asian. So I felt half Asian, but I did not feel half Japanese and I did not feel half Chinese either. And I've never even been to China. However, I did once take a mission trip to Taiwan in middle school. So if you count Taiwan as China or don't, that's a question. And then my family, we like to travel. We also went to Hong Kong in early 1997. So technically still not China, but I went to Britain early. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I, it's kind of a joke because it also, I was there, but they yeah. were all decorating for the changeover at the time. So it was coming, but um, I still need to go to China, especially now that I have a region that identifies mine. And then in terms of being black and African-American, as a child, I would say, well, I don't know. Am I African-American or am I from Africa? How would I know? But with 23andMe, it did sort of reinforce and show that I did have a lot of family in the Southern United States. It made me feel more connected to the African-American experience and how I'm a product of that. And my adopted family It is not uncommon for Americans, U.S. Americans, to adopt babies from around the world. However, even in my adoption story, my adopted family is both, they're both African-American as well. And that actually is pretty rare. And I actually ended up growing up with two sets of Black grandparents. You know, I have Black family in Louisiana, North Carolina, and Maryland, D.C., and um, I definitely feel half Black as well, but not fully, but definitely more so than if I had been raised by an adopted white family. Um, I have Black cousins that, you know, I can have some connection with, but there is also this difference because I spent half of my life, my childhood at least, out of the country. So those are some of my complexities, but the strengths are that connection with all of these different communities. And in Colorado, where I live, I've become a more liberal progressive type person, but I grew up in the deep South. I have understanding and um, empathy and compassion for some of the cultures 
and their, you know, those aspects as well from the South. And I have a lot of complexity there. And then I, I didn't really go into this, but I went to very religious schools through from preschool through my junior year of college, in fact, and having white evangelicalism um, in my schools definitely shaped me to have this like white evangelical part of me as well. So this understanding I think is just very important. And then my other strengths I think are just the ability to think beyond one. And um, if you get into research around cultures, a lot of people will use these two examples of opposite examples and they'll say, oh, well, U.S., the Americas, you know, that's a very individualist culture. They're very um, one-minded, I, I need to survive, me, me, me. Or Japan is a very collectivist culture and they will, you know, work to have social harmony and work to move together. And I realized as I started to grow up more that those tensions exactly were within me. I was the one with all of this um, religious and American patriotism and um, my dad was in the military. So military-ness kid stuff. I had all of that coming at me, but also was living in a culture that valued harmony and collaboration. And um, I have found conflict as an adult with that may or may not fit the others in the environment I'm in. And it also sometimes is a strength because I, my value of collaboration is stronger. So I think those are some of my strengths. You're one of the very rare people or friends that I have who have so many intersection in life, especially um, with race. Mm -hmm. um, so you talked about your strengths and now it's about challenges, right? Um, have you have you met any challenges in life because your racial identity and you know being adopted in deep south and you know um and also you traveled around um what are the challenges one of the big challenges i end up feeling is i feel very in between all of the cultures i'm in the middle but at the same time, I'm very much not any one of the cultures. And something, especially in Colorado, which is a little bit extra white in terms of demographics, and DU, which has sort of that same feel, um, sometimes I'm the most diverse person in the room. I'm the most Asian, I'm the blackest, I'm the brownest, whatever, you know, whatever category. and. I have found that there's often this reliance on me to be the diversity voice. Oh, well, what do you think if we're going to do this thing about race? What do you think, Joy? And I guess if I'm flattering myself, I'm sure they're talking to me because I'm just intelligent and they like to hear my input. But also it's because of my skin color and my cultural backgrounds. And that's just a challenge. Yeah. And, um, being multiracial and not just even biracial 
and yeah. not just single racial something yeah. else. Yeah. Um, Do you feel tokenized? Sometimes, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And in particular, and see, I had friends ping. So I had friends that were involved in politics and still are. And sometimes the friends would be like, hey, can you come to a photo shoot? And for a season or so, I did that. And I would show up and then I'd be the brown person in the room doing photo shoots for political stuff. And um, I actually had a complexity where I did that for a politician that I do support, I support her. But there was an, um, a challenger in a race that I also really liked. But how much of a voice could I be for the challenger when I was on all the lit for the other one? So when I experienced that, I realized, you know, I need to stop letting my image just be used for tokenism. You know, if any of the politicians actually got to know me, maybe I'd feel differently about supporting them. But they don't know me. They just know my skin color and my zip code, you know? Mm, yeah. So yeah. I don't really love that. And mm. I've had that complexity just a touch at mortgage. Yeah. But I'm a student leader as well. So mm. I've got ahead and agreed to photo shoots sometimes at mortgage. I'm sure you can yeah. see me on the website. Yep. And it's okay. <laughs> and I talked to the marketing director and they were like, um, do you like doing this? And I said, well, I feel complex about it, mm -hmm. but I am a mortgage student yeah. and I am a student leader. So I don't mind doing it this time. Yeah. But, but do you yeah. also wonder like that's a, a little superficial touch, you know, because you're invited just because you're seeing skin color. Um, Yes. Yeah. At my um, first undergrad college, I always joked that they probably rounded me up and counted me twice because they invited me to all the black groups on campus, but they also invited me to all the Asian groups on campus. And I'm like, I wonder if they're counting me <laughs> twice. 2.5s, right? Well, that's also good about your intersection, right? Because a lot of people can't really step. Well, both. Yeah, right? Like, you cannot be in two boats, but, like, you can actually, you can actually be. I've been very privileged for the inclusion in multiple groups, mm -hmm. but also um, someone wanted to interview me once on my experiences as a teacher of color, mm -hmm. and I told my dad, and he is an African-American male who was an officer in the military. He also worked as a teacher for a long time. And he's like, well, your experience is so different than a black teacher. And I was like, well, yeah, I know. But it really highlighted that difference and the colorism. And I was very aware of light skin privilege growing up as a child, especially with my cousins and their experiences. But, you know, like you were saying, intersectionality. It's also the intersectionality of being an only child of two college-educated parents that like to travel. And my other families, you know, they haven't moved around much and they have more children and they don't have the same economic privilege that I had growing up. 
So I know it all impacts together to form my identity, but it's been a challenge to understand all of the plights of different groups. And I ever so lightly touched on some of the is Taiwan China thing, but like, I know so little about all of that. And I know that there's a lot more there to dig into and to dialogue about, but that's a challenge for me because I'm just a Coloradan. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I yeah. spent two weeks in Taiwan. Yeah. I, I can't be a speaker and, you know, champion. Exactly. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. We, I, I talked about this in another episode with another Taiwanese when we we're talking about nationality as a privilege. Um, even us as Taiwanese, we kind of get confused. It's not just about how we think, it's also about how the international realm, you know, the, those international committees or organizations. Um, if you ask a Chinese person, like pers people from China, they will say, no, we're definitely Taiwan, Taiwan is part of China. But if you ask a lot of people in Taiwan, they will also say, no, Taiwan is independent. So, well, 23andMe taught me I was not Formosian. Yeah. I was Chinese. Yeah. So a lot of people, um, it's also a little complex in the demographics in Taiwan. Uh, there are 14 original tribes in, in Taiwan. And then there is Han people who came from China. And there are also people, you know, no one existed in an island just yeah. by its own, right? It's always immigrants and all that. So, um, so for me, it's easier to track back because my grandparents came from China. However, there are also Taiwanese who came maybe even before the 1900s. Maybe they came like in, in 17 or 18 mm -hmm. uh, um, centuries. So they wouldn't track back to all the way to China or to whatever ancestors they have. So they didn't call themselves Taiwanese, but still, you know, the tribes are different. And, and then nationality is also a politician political thing i will say so absolutely it's, it's so confusing um i will it, say it's been a pleasure being at mortgage because even though the school as a whole is quite um not extremely diverse our graduate programs are and I worked in Boulder for a, a while and it was extremely white there. And I didn't really think about it much because, you know, I'm used to that. But when I came to DU within the first week, I'd met international students from so many other countries and it was amazing. And um, you being Taiwanese American, you know, that's cool. And there are other students from Taiwan, but there are also a lot of Chinese students from different areas in China yeah. that I've gotten to meet and connect with and learn and trade cultures with a little bit. Yeah. And I've, I've really valued that ability to have more dialogue than I might have if I only lived in Taiwan or That's only true. lived in Okinawa still. Yeah. Like I know yeah. a lot of Okinawans more, but not the Jamaicans and yeah. the Malawians and, you know, people from all over the world it's yeah, so cool yeah 
I think that's one of the privilege that we, after Louis and I, we moved here, we found it's like a lot more diversity we can actually encounter. Just what, like what you said, a lot of people that we have never met in our own countries. But when we came here, even though in this pre like predominantly white state in Colorado, still, you know, the diversity, even though it's like so little, but we still get to meet them. Yeah. Um. Thank you for sharing your, you know, your background and your identity stories and all that. Let's talk a little bit about gifted education because that's your, that's your career, right? Um, how did you go into that career? Okay, so let's go back to some of that identity question, right? Sure. So growing up, my mother's a guidance counselor, and I was going to private schools, and. In second grade, my teachers advocated for me with my parents, sorry, in first grade, to skip, to have me skip first grade. And then they also asked if I would skip second grade. And I thought that the third graders were very big and I did not want to do that or I just felt uncomfortable. So they did not skip me to third grade when I was six. They just had me take third grade math and reading that year. So I was fortunate that even though I didn't know the gifted word, educators were advocating for me because they recognized something. But I didn't know what it was. And we moved and I started third grade at a new school. I'm a new state because my dad was in the military. And... You know, I always knew I was smart, but I spent a lot of energy trying to try to be normal and trying to fit in and not understanding why more was sometimes being asked of me. It seemed unfair. Um, even in like in middle school, I skipped seventh grade math and my school was small enough that they were able to really advocate for me and a few other students to get higher level education that we were ready for. And once again, oh, I'm just smart. Oh, everyone else is like me, no big deal. And um, sometimes people would say the microaggression, like, oh, you're so articulate, you know, because they weren't accustomed to interacting with blackish kids that they viewed as intelligent. Mm. So anyway, I had all this coming in, you know, and I didn't really understand any of it. Yeah. Um, and I would try to hide. I would often underachieve or underperform because I didn't find value in assignments sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'd calculate what's the minimum I have to do on this assignment to get mm. the C for the quarter, the semester. Yeah. I don't care. And I was learning a lot, but I wasn't showing it or demonstrating it. Mm. And anyway, so I went to college and I had some, I worked as a teacher for a while. I had some other positions too. And I did start to get sick and um, I started to feel stupid in particular through meetings at work. And I would feel like I understood something at the very beginning and an hour later we were still talking about it. And I didn't understand what was so wrong with me. I didn't understand why I was always so off from everyone else. Because I told you, I tried really hard to be normal. 
and I'm normal and I can get my shit together. Sorry. Um, why can't you, why can't you be normal and like me? And, um, I had some unrealistic expectations happening. And in 2015, so only five years ago, I wondered if I was losing my mental capacity, I guess, because I told you I was feeling sick. So anyway, I took the test for Mensa and I did get in. And Mensa is a high IQ organization where they take people in the 98th or 99th percentile. So I joined Mensa, America Mensa, and also Mensa International because there are chapters all over the world, which is so cool. And I love that. That appeals to me. Um, and then I started looking into what does this mean? And I, the first article I found was on asynchrony, which is this idea that gifted people develop at these rates where they have a lot of mature development in some areas and they might be lagging behind their normal aged peers and others. And I was like, oh my gosh, this starts to explain me. And that was written by Dr. Linda Silverman and the Columbus group. That was their construct of asynchrony. And I remember just crying because, oh, this explains some of my intensity and who I am. And I got more involved with Mensa as a volunteer. I became a proctor for a while, so I would help give the admissions test. And I also became the gifted youth coordinator. So I started researching more and more about giftedness. At the same time, I was starting a program for my master's, and I did an online program. And I always want to do all the jobs, Ping. So I called to enroll in the MBA program. But then I realized, I don't know, that that wasn't, I don't know, that wasn't giving me the heart warmth I needed. And on the phone with the admissions office, I pivoted to the master's program in industrial and organizational psychology. And I was thinking, oh, um, we're so weird as individuals. How do we work as groups? That was kind of some of my questioning as I went into that program. And then I wanted to study for my thesis, I wanted to study um, gifted adults in the workplace. And my advisor's like, no, that's too big. That's a whole career. So I only looked at cognitive ability testing in the workplace, which was fine and interesting. <laughs> but I had an itch to learn more about the giftedness. Yeah. And when we moved, my partner and I moved to Littleton, I was looking for a grad program I was interested in. And honestly, I wasn't going to go far from my house. We just moved. I was setting in, settling in. And um, DU's program, DU's within 30 minutes of my house. And I was like, wow, I'm so far in Littleton. That's a big deal to me. And I applied for the program and got in. And it has been an amazing whirlwind of a time learning more about giftedness and talent development and also career development, which is my personal interest. Um, so because of my background as an IO psychologist and because of my experience as an educator, because of my experience as a gifted woman whose giftedness was, at least in my case, I received services, but no identification. I didn't know who I was. 
And um, now I'm a big advocate for that. Even if a student can't get formally identified, if they are psychologically gifted, the understanding really can help. And um, I'm a big advocate for that and for earlier career development of gifted students because one of the characteristic slash issues that a lot of gifted people struggle with, not all, not all, one of them is multipotentiality. And it's this idea that someone can be really good at almost anything. And that's something I find for myself. And um, I'm not the best dart player. But if I practice for a little bit, I'm going to be better than most of the people in the room very quickly. And sometimes I lean in and then I show off a little and then I may feel embarrassed that I crushed it too hard. So often I don't lean in and I let other people step up and, you know, I try to step back so they don't see my intensity of skill sometimes. Um, professionally, I'm trying not to lean out as much and I'm trying to lean into that. But the multipotentiality, it's near paralyzing sometimes because any one decision means I no longer can make other decisions or it feels like that. And uh, my mother, for example, wanted me to get my master's degree right after undergrad. Like that was a big thing for her my whole childhood. Right away, right away, right away. And I was like, I don't know what I'd want to get it in. And if you force me today, is that going to be administration vaguely or more math ed? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm glad I personally took time to figure out that I was interested in industrial organizational psychology because I didn't even know that existed when I was in undergrad. And that early exposure is something I'm a strong advocate for nowadays because without it, you aren't even going to know or you're not going to be able to excel in other areas. And um, there's some great work done by um, Rena Sabotnik and Olszewski Kubilius and Frank Worrell. Paula, sorry, I mixed up the names there. But um, edit that out. Okay. There's some great work done by Rena Sabotnik and Paula Olszewski Kubilius and Frank Worrell. And they look at the psychology of talent development and performance and how different um, careers have different age trajectories. So for instance, a male soprano peaks in before puberty, you know, whereas a psychologist doesn't really peak until older, later adulthood. And that really helped me sort of understand some of my wiggle through the career space and some of my tensions. Wow, this is, Thank you for sharing all that because like I've never thought hmm how do I put it so with so like kids or adults with giftedness I never thought that they will be feeling stressed or you know I, I felt like because you always try to be normal um that's also kind of a small form of oppression that and so I'm just wondering 
what would a good service look like for gifted kids or adults in their um, school or workplace? So part of the confusion and then the inequity is around the definition. What is giftedness? And there is not one answer I can tell you, unfortunately, which is part of the problem. So this is some of how I've been understanding it and maybe it'll help you. So gifted people are identified as people who will benefit more from special services. So in gifted education, which gifted ed was only created in a response to the space race and Sputnik launching gifted education was created to decide which students were worthy of gifted education of giving them educational opportunities and which students would be more productive for society, more profitable for society. So that's what gifted education's purpose is. It's to identify people that will be productive. That then leads to ignoring some characteristics of giftedness. That leads to ignoring perhaps gifted underachievers. Because if you're underachieving and not demonstrating task commitment or um, hard work and achievement, then maybe you don't qualify for this program because they only want people that are going to be productive, right? So that leads to finding people perhaps that are like around the 90th IQ percentile. Like you want people smart cognitively, but not so smart that they can't connect to the rest of society. They have to play the game. I, however, I mean, I'm interested in that and career development and gifted education for more people. That's, that's fine. But also I'm interested in the psychologically gifted, the people that have high cognitive ability and all of the emotional intensity and the extreme sensitivities and overexcitabilities that all come with that. And these people, the psychologically gifted, as I call them, they, that persists through their lifespan. That changes who they are and how they interact with the world around them. They may or may not go to college. They may or may not be productive, but their rapid thinking, their deep reception of knowledge, their extreme absorption of what they're interested in, that's going to persist. And those are the people that I'm interested in supporting in the workplace because I find, and you know, I've yet to do all the, the research studies to cite myself, but anecdotally, you know, I know so many cognitively gifted people that hate work, that hate authority, that hate being micromanaged or forced to adhere to obedient compliance stuff. They want to be creative or challenge authority or be an entrepreneur. And they also might lack certain soft skills, some psychosocial skills that they need development on, like how to talk to people, how to disagree with someone in authority, you know, like these little things that without which someone may not succeed in the workspace. So I think um, realizing that gifted education's purposes might not be the same as the need 
my purpose of supporting the needs of psychologically gifted people that are at the fringe. And that's sometimes a challenge because sometimes the extremely cognitively gifted people, they, they don't want to play the game to win all the points. They want to break the game because that game is stupid. Maybe. And depending on your goal as an organization or workplace, you may want to create innovators that can push boundaries or that may be a huge threat. So I see a need to better match workplaces with people's skills, but also to help those people get the skills they need to help them be successful either within an organization or individually as an entrepreneur. So you, you mentioned like, you know, we're trying to get gifted people to be the equity piece of that. And, you know, that popped into my mind, the word utilitarian. So like when you put it that way, it's like how you guys can, right? How you guys can contribute to the society and all that. How would you feel when the notion or even the gifted education is there in place for you? Um. Another characteristic of giftedness is a preoccupation with morality and justice and concern. Um, Many, many gifted people, because it's not just cognitive intelligence, it's also this extreme emotional sensitivity and awareness. And um, a lot of people are very troubled by current events and want to make the world a better place and want to help. And that is such a strong trait in the and people, the more gifted they are. Um, there are also levels of giftedness as well. Like, I, I, w- I like to call it mild giftedness, and then there's even more severe. But um, some phrases might be mild giftedness, moderate giftedness, um, highly, exceptionally, and profoundly giftedness, where you're at different levels or standard deviations, where there's even more intensity, even fewer peers that are like-minded. Um, just, just... I use the term gifted, but know that this phenomenon is much bigger. And um, I think the utilitarian thing is sort of practical. I mean, what's the point of investing educational resources if there's not some output that is useful and productive for society as a whole? I don't need productivity to only be for my profitable company. I personally value more benefit to all of society. And like you were saying, that multicultural, multiracial, global perspective I have really makes me want to do that. Another thing about giftedness is it's very culture bound. And the psycho, sorry, the psychological giftedness, that intensity and emotional intensity and depth, that's pretty persistent around the globe. But what a country values and chooses to fund and the people they choose to identify to receive those services, that is very cultural bound. And there's some work like um, from the Maori in New Zealand around efforts to talk to tribal leaders and have them identify characteristics that they viewed as valuable in society and then using that to identify people that were deemed gifted and then giving opportunities to those 
people to develop their skills in these areas. So what's fun is you can I, use gifted principles and gifted education knowledge to kind of tailor your instruction for any small group. And um, my professor at DU knows someone or was affiliated with someone who was affiliated with a study that um, they worked to design rodeo identification for giftedness because someone was really gifted at rodeo, which is um, like riding cattle and stuff. And they had to develop a new plan. Some athletes and sports teams and Juilliard and dance places, you know, music and dance places, they use different criteria to identify the people that they label as hyper talented or gifted in those areas. So keeping in mind that it's um, unique is something that's important to consider. And then you were talking about equity as well and um, disproportionality and gifted education in America in particular. We're extremely inequitable. We, it seems sometimes as though our systems are set up to ensure that only the wealthy and possibly only the white are present in the gifted ed classes. And we overpopulate special education classes with students of color. And we act as though cultural behaviors and characteristics are pathologized in a white America's success culture scheme, you know? And um, sometimes that's a challenge. And compliance is a good example of that. You know, if you act as though compliance is valued and challenge is um, demonized and then you're in trouble for challenge, you know, that limits people who's, who have creativity and who are always pushing the boundaries. And I would argue that we need to find ways to develop those creative skills appropriately. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be any compliance in education, but um, being thoughtful about how are we valuing certain traits and what is our purpose in doing that, I think that's important. The other, um, a couple other big things in gifted ed towards equity. One is the use of universal screening. A lot of times districts would rely on only teachers to say kids are gifted and refer them for further evaluation. And then any biases that teacher may have end up perpetuated in the identification of students. So universal screening is this idea that all students in an area should receive a, a screener for intelligence and IQ, and then that can generate more students to then do a further evaluation of to make sure that their needs are met. The other is also um, local norms. And sometimes people will take the giftedness, um, they'll use the 95th percentile as a cutoff score and they'll use it, you have to hit the 95th percentile on a nationally norm standardized assessment to qualify. So then there's some smaller districts that don't have anyone who hits in the 95th percentile. And then that school district might say, well, we don't have anyone gifted, so we're not gonna do anything else we only had a 94th percentile person. We aren't going to do anything about it. Local norms, however, set is this idea that we should be within the school 
taking the top 5% and making sure we're doing enriched opportunities for them to help them develop their skills even higher. And also in terms of equity with proportionality, if you want to make sure that your gifted ed population mirrors the demographics of your district and you have 20% African-American students, then look at the African-American students and pick the top 5% of them. And then look at your Asian-American students and pick the top 5% of them and make sure that you're having the representation you're seeking. Because if you just let it be default, that's a problem. Default wasn't equitable, not necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Moving forward, our last question is like, what are your hopes and dreams to achieve through your dissertation since we're all doctoral students? Oh, doctoral <laughs> students. Okay. That helps limit my dreams. Um, I am really interested in Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration. And one of the factors there is overexcitabilities. So part of my question is to find, do multipotentialites have a different profile of overexcitabilities compared to people that are gifted in like one area in particular and people that are more cognitively neurotypical? So I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in designing career development curriculum for the K-12 kind of arena, the school system, but also beyond. I am personally passionate about working with HR and managers, that kind of level, to give them professional learning to help them support their gifted employees. Because if we're lucky, we invest in gifted education for a student for K from kindergarten through 12th grade. And then we just do not seem to care. We just let them go into the wild. And I want to change that and help make sure that we are supporting them in the workplace too. Because what's the point of all that investment if they just keep quitting jobs because they hate them? How do we find a better fit sooner? so people can develop a career path and then hopefully have more career well-being, which to me includes productivity, but is not solely productivity. And it includes balance and happiness and moral harmony. You know, do you find your ikigai at work? Do you find that reason for being and purpose there? So those are some of my hopes and dreams. Um, and I guess, because, hey, doc student, I'll throw in a research dream I want to work to build the ability to survey the people. And when I say the people, I mean all the people, not yeah. just some people, not just some people from one zip code, not just some people from one tax bracket or one nation. So I think about ways I can capture the voices of a more global um, perspective so I can help, hopefully, help shape the future as we explore our galaxy you know we need to make sure we have some systems that work for more than just one ethnic or cultural group so that's awesome love that and i really hope to see more gifted people being found you know it's also like i feel like 
Yeah, I never thought. You know, we in education we always talk about you know disabilities and I students who need support. But from your sharing that, I actually learned a lot to to think from the other side of the spectrum. And um, you gave a background description. You know, <laughs> like you talk talk about your stories and all that, and then your your plans and hopes. Um, I also see there is some gaps to be filled in in gifted education and also the career development. That's right. Like from K to twelve, if you have the education, but like you might just dump the people in the career world just like that. And you know, I really think that you can serve a great position as a consultant for HR. You know, you can work with different、mm -hmm. projects and different companies and all that.、From、and thank. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, write books and all that. Yeah, go ahead. There's also one more thing you were talking about both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, there is a concept and a group of people that are identified as twice exceptional.、Mm -hmm. They have an exceptionality that is like a special education realm, a learning disability, a physical disability,、um, executive functioning issues, you know, something like that. And they are also gifted in one or more areas. So it's disparate, and、um, twice exceptional people are all over the place. And the problem is, their things can mask each other. So because they're gifted, maybe they're dyslexic too, and they can't quite read. But their context skills,、yeah. you know, they can sort of guess、yeah. enough that the teacher may not recognize that they can't actually read well,、mm. or、um, because or、like、they're. A... Sorry, go ahead. Because they have dysgraphia and their handwriting is really bad,、oh. a teacher might not understand the amazing depth in their story that they're telling. Yeah, because they can't read it. So, working to make sure you have a team when you're identifying students、mm -hmm. that can help tease that apart、mm -hmm. and realize that if we give some strategies for this, their giftedness can thrive even more.、Mm -hmm. And making sure that we don't say. Well, your handwriting's too bad for you to be in upper science. Yeah. If you're really good at science, you should be taking that science and let's do assistive technologies、yeah. to help with the handwriting.、Mm -hmm. Don't limit opportunity because of one exceptionality. Yeah. So I think that's something that、um, that concept、mm. has been around a little bit, but it's definitely newer in the field, and there's a lot of advocacy and work going into that and awareness. And in fact.、Um, My professor and I are working with DU to make a certificate in twice exceptionality because we have the coursework in in school psychology and also in gifted ed and curriculum instruction, and pulling some of those classes together can help、um, give students a background in twice exceptionality to help identify students that are like that. So. Awesome. So the listeners, if you're interested to contact Joylin, her email is J O I dot. L I N at D U dot E D U. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. Bye, Ping. Thanks for listening to Chai with Ping. Let us hear your voices and stories. Please share this episode, like, and follow us on Instagram at Chai with Ping. You can also email us at chai with Ping at gmail dot com. Till next time. Thank、you